Welcome to Tyranny Today. This is the second episode in a series of three where we review um, top 10 individuals who either impressed us in 2023 or may impress us in 2024. And we started last week by reviewing the list of top 10 leaders who had some achievements in 2023. And I also mentioned that while their achievements are often undeniable, it doesn't mean that I personally support any of their policies or not, as I often do not. This week, my role is a lot easier because um, you will easily detect the level of my disdain and sarcasm for some of the personalities listed as the grand losers, the grand perdants of 2023. So let me just preempt by saying that uh, there are no women on this list, something I have just realized. Well, there, there are women among the leaders of 2023 and among the putative leaders of 2024. Maybe most female leaders just don't fall as spectacularly as some of the men about whose fateful existence or end to it I will remind you of in a moment. So, if you are hoping for a scoop, or at least a tiny scoopito, then wait for the position two in this ranking, by far the most sensational story of the year, as unsolved as a riddle wrapped in an enigma and thrown into the Mariana Trench of the global geopolitical intrigue. But let's start with something so perfectly dull that parents should use it to lull to sleep their overexcited infants at 8 p.m. Because that is position 10. Olaf Scholz, the 65-year-old Chancellor of the Federal Republic of Germany. So I thought I'd start with one of those never-ending, multiply concatenated sentences that Olaf Scholz sometimes opens, only to lose his audience, and then end with a particle, some 160 seconds of legal newspeak torture later. Uh, but since I don't want to lose you, my listeners, I'll pass on this temptation. And if you speak German, you certainly watch the Heute satire every Friday evening, so I don't need to plagiarize uh, their chops. So, okay, Olaf Scholz, his rhetoric, certainly not his strongest side, but then what is? In the last couple of weeks of the year, his government got paralyzed like a deer in Volkswagen's headlights after the country's constitutional court caught the cabinet with a hand in a cookie jar full of unused corona funds. Uh-uh, nope, said the judges in Karlsruhe. Extra budgetary tricks? Not for us here in Germany. While in America, China, India, and Japan, governments are splashing on quantum computing, AI, and space primacy, we, in Germany, are proud of our deficit fetish and are happily living with potholes in the streets, a 20th century internet infrastructure, and a 4G telecom network that is so reliant on Huawei that German language wiretapping has probably become the favorite among the algorithm that Beijing is now writing to listen to Olaf Scholz's incomprehensible speeches. So what happened? Scholz and company tried to circumvent the debt break, the Schuldenbremse, in order to pursue aggressive climate protection policies and some other high-profile co-investments, not least uh, with Taiwan's uh, TSMC, which is building a foundry near Dresden, but uh, which is complaining of talent shortages, by the way. So Germany, the fatherland of modern civil engineering, is sending tech students to Taiwan to learn the craft. It's like the world upside down. Of course, Germany's crass backwardness and the limited shelf life of the country's economic model are not Scholz's fault. But when the Chancellor pretends that it's business as usual, he attracts sneering giggles from the members of the Bundestag, the parliament. 
In response to the Karlsruhe verdict, the Bundestag's budget committee postponed the final decision on the federal budget for 2024, putting the fragile three-way coalition under an unprecedented strain. Past disputes within this traffic light coalition were often about communication, personal sensitivities, or craftsmanship in general, but the decision from Karlsruhe had the potential to really switch off the traffic light for good. Why? because the mishap loosens the commitment of the Green Party to the coalition's survival. The Greens voters demand to protect the climate, and that was and remains the main motive for this party to remain in the government. And you have to give the Greens a credit for at least some intellectual flexibility. No, not about the nukes, civilian nukes, I mean. But a party, co-financed in the 1980s by Soviet agents, has turned openly hawkish on Moscow, since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, rightly perceiving the natural gas blackmail as part of the broader climate problem. By comparison, Olaf Scholz's Social Democrats took about 18 months to recognize that Germany's number one enemy is now Russia. Olaf Scholz has few budgetary alternatives to tapping the corona funds. Tax increases to replace the billions lost may be quite popular with SPD, Social Democrats, and the Greens, but would probably lead to the collapse of the coalition as the chairman of the third coalition party, FDP, would probably have to lead his party out of the government. That leaves the traffic light coalition straddling like a tripod that swivels in search of a fiscal cornucopia somewhere. There may be no such cornucopia because the constitution says that you cannot spend more money than you have. But this rule is taken out of the context of a recapitalizing West which is in dire need to stand up to the bullies of the red team. Germany's five leading corporates are like addicts sucking on the Chinese opium pipe. The country's second-largest pension fund is warning that too many Mittelstand companies are still outsourcing their R&D to communist China. It's as if the Berlin Wall was little more than an extension of the Great Wall. And Olaf Scholz and company are driving straight into it. Alright, position 9, Li Chang, the 64-year-old Prime Minister of Communist China. Despite a very tangible reorientation of China's economic priorities, the Western media spent 2023 looking for signs of leadership stabilization in China. Well, it was not forthcoming. The recent purges in several ministries have left Premier Li Chang severely weakened. In fact, Li Chang, while still formally the Premier, has been demoted to a position of a figurehead. His position is being undermined by Vice Premier He Lifeng, who, as a director of the General Office of the Central Financial and Economic Affairs Commission, reports directly to Xi Jinping. This commission, as well as the newly established Central Financial Commission, which is not the same, have become the de facto top decision-making bodies in economic and financial affairs in China. As a result of the recent restructuring, the PBOC, the central bank, has been transformed from a major decision-maker into something like an administrative body focused exclusively on execution. Now, unlike Premier Li Chang, He Lifeng communicates directly with Xi Jinping, as does Tsai Chi, the first-ranked secretary of the Secretariat of the Communist Party, and who is as close to Xi Jinping as uh, Lin Piao was for Mao Zedong. Why is that? Part of this is the pedigree. Premier Li Chang has the misfortune of not being part of the so-called Fujian Gang. Like Xi Jinping, both He Lifeng and Tsai Chi earned their stripes in Fujian province in the South. This Fujian connection also explains this gang's obsession with Taiwan. In southern part of Fujian, people speak a language which is very similar to Taiwanese, 
and during the Manjurian dynasty, Taiwan was for about 200 years part of Fujian province and became almost completely isolated from the global economy, unlike during the earlier periods of Portuguese or Dutch rule or the subsequent periods of Japanese and independent rule. Premier Li Chang just does not have the Fujianese pedigree that the other top three men share, and backgrounds such as these matter in the mafia-style, deeply personalized Leninist structure of the CCP. During this year, Premier Li Chang has been bypassed at many international events. For example, it was He Lifeng, and not Li Chang, who was sent to meet with Janet Yellen in the run-up to the APEC summit in San Francisco prior to Xi Jinping's visit to the US. For all these reasons, Li Chang has been described as the weakest premier in the PRC's modern era. Since his appointment in November 2022, his position has been undermined by high-profile ministerial disappearances. The Minister of Foreign Affairs, the Minister of Defense, and the Minister of Finance have all vanished in 2023 under Li Chang's watch, was certainly rather snatched away from under his watch. So pity the man. It may not be that easy to run a government, weak as it is, when you never know how much smaller the next cabinet meeting will be as the Stalinist body snatchers eliminate your team members one by one. So the Premier's role has been limited to hollow exhortations, such as calls for tighter coordination and proper planning for, say, rare earths exploration, development, and research. Well, big deal. A truly big deal would be holding of the third plenum of the Communist Party, during which, usually, direction for the economy is set for four years that follow. Except that, despite being scheduled for the fourth quarter of this year, it never took place. No third plenum, no clear directives for the hapless Mr. Li Chang. Okay, position 8. Gabriel Boric, 37-year-old president of Chile. There was a time when Chile was in the ascendant. Its pension system was the envy of other South American nations. Its political pendulum between conservatives and social democrats exhibited all colors of a stable democracy. And its soccer team beat Argentina twice in the final game of Copa America in 2015 and 2016. These memories are now long gone. As Argentina is celebrated as the world's number one soccer team, as it usually is once every generation, and as Buenos Aires is embarking on an admittedly perilous adventure of wholesale remodeling of its economic system, Gabriel Boric's Chile has sunken into a quagmire of leftist promises that are exposing the hollowness of Marxian objective reality. A string of legislative defeats, a corruption scandal, and the worst crime wave in decades have derailed the youthful Mr. Boric's plans to radically transform the country. It forced him to attempt to change course for his remaining two years in office, but unfortunately Mr. Boric and his ilk are clutching at the Chinese straw in the process. Not a very promising policy, given that Beijing's geopolitical priorities remain in Russia, Saudi Arabia, and Pakistan, with Chile relegated to a distant position in the top 10, if not worse. Recall that Boric was elected in 2021 in the wake of mass protests over inequality dubbed the social explosion, estaído social, something similar in substance, if not in style or outcome, to the French gilet jaune. Chileans protested against high cost of living, inadequate public services, and a failure to close the gap between the rich and the poor, but not in favor of a wholesale transformation of the economic model that functioned kind of okay. But Boric misread the mood, and when he was swept to power, he promised to smell several cakes and eat them all. 
including wide-ranging changes to services privatized by the Chicago Boys in the 1980s, increase in taxes and amendments to investor-friendly constitution that underpinned the country's relative success in the previous three decades. Now, relative because not always equitably shared, which led to those bouts of social unrest unseen in Santiago since the dark days of Salvador Allende's crass mismanagement. But two years on, Gabriel Boric's core campaign pledges to scrap Chile's private pension and raise taxes to fund social programs have all foundered. His reckoning came when the voters rejected a radically left-wing constitution, whose overhaul is now in the hands of right-wing lawmakers. And then there is corruption. Regional officials have been accused of awarding millions of dollars in government contracts to politically friendly NGOs or social media influencers, who offer little expertise beyond apt, smiley faces. Amidst all these defeats, Boric's approval ratings fell to around 30%. His only victories are increases in minimum wage and a 40-hour workweek, but that's in a world where the young generation would rather work 20 hours to protect its work-life balance inherited from the COVID years. In China, lionized by Mr. Boric and his cabinet, the youth is even more ambitious. Lying flat is the solution for a workweek without work. Chilean officials also had to scale back the pension reform down to a proposal similar to the one which was already passed under Boric's right-wing predecessor. He's still planning to increase public spending by about 3.5% in 2024, but a hostile Congress will make sure that he spends his remaining years in office as a lame duck. For example, the tax bill, already rejected once, is being split into separate parts focused on combating tax evasion and increasing levies. Right-wing politicians have already vowed to block that project. And let's not forget that Boric took power at a time when the pink tide, Maria Rosa, Onda Rosa, was sweeping through um, Latin America with AMLO in Mexico, Arce in Bolivia, Castillo in Peru, then Boric, then Petro in Colombia, and Lula the zombie. It is looking very different now with the examples of Uruguay, El Salvador, Ecuador, and Argentina. With the elections in Mexico and Venezuela next year, well, who knows what happens next? Crime is one issue that the left has been quite incapable of tackling. Since Boric assumed power, Chile has become a stomping ground for organized crime, which was almost invisible before that. The right-wing president of Salvador, Naim Bukele, showed that you don't need to pussyfoot around this issue, and he took off the white gloves to huge applause from the population thus far cowed by the gangs. After Borges' exit, Chile may need its own naive Bukele. Position 7. Jair Bolsonaro, the 68-year-old former president of Brazil. This year the term Jewels of Arabia, in Latin America's largest democracy, related to the real-life drama enveloping former president and his family. Nearly a year after the infamous Brazilian version of January 6 events, the former president and members of his inner circle have been accused of conspiring to sell expensive jewelry offered to them by overseas dignitaries. The scandal was a blow to someone who leveraged evangelical voters on an unapologetically moralist message. This was visible during the 2022 presidential campaign when many of Bolsonaro's supporters could be seen praying to heavens to stem the leftist scourge led by Lula, a politician most tainted with corruption allegations. For Bolsonaro, who exploited this theme during the campaign, the underhand connection to the Saudi Arabian government threatened to put an end to his franchise with evangelicals. Should that happen, the Brazilian evangelicals' moral spine would appear much more straight than their American counterparts, 
who had no qualms about Jared Kushner's Saudi deals, inked barely upon his departure from the most nepotist White House since the times of John Kennedy. Apparently, those jewels of Arabia, Joyas de Arabia, worth nearly 17 million reais and containing expensive Geneva watch brands, Rolex and Patek Philippe, were received on official trips during the Bolsonaro administration to Saudi Arabia and Bahrain. Under Brazilian law, such donations are supposed to enter the public collection. But police investigators claim that presidential aides illegally diverted these objects and tried to sell them in the U.S., generating tens of thousands of dollars in cash proceeds that they suspect were intended for the former president. The scandal, interestingly enough, entangled Bolsonaro's attractive 42-year-old wife, Michelle, who is popular with conservative evangelical women, and who was touted as a possible candidate for a Senate seat or even a vice presidential ticket in 2026. Why Michelle? Well, clearly, Bolso has been plotting in a foundation of a political dynasty, similar to the Kirchner's in Argentina or the Bushes further north. Why those attempts to plant his family members? Because Bolsonaro has already been barred from running for office until 2030 due to campaign violations. Somehow Brazil's system doesn't play little hooky-pooky with presidential access the way the U.S. judicial system inexplicably does. Except that the judiciary's decision are at variance with the popular vote. Bolso's enemies know that his imprisonment would further increase his popularity. Didn't that happen to Lula, after all? In this, Brazil is not very different from the United States. Position 6. Benjamin Netanyahu, the 74-year-old Prime Minister of Israel. He's the oldest on this list and the longest serving. I first saw him as a Prime Minister in Davos, I think it was back in 1997. He's also as politically gifted as he's morally autistic. Last week, Bibi made some of his most explicit comments yet on the strategy to doom his country. I'm proud that I prevented establishment of Palestinian state, Dixit Netanyahu at a press conference in Tel Aviv. He also bragged about undermining the Oslo Accords, which he called a fateful mistake. Viva Igalamir, death to Yitzhak Rabin. Of course, that last sentence curiously went missing from Bibi's missive. Netanyahu is clearly losing his touch. He's so convinced that the U.S. pressure is confined to Biden's losing re-election ticket that he can survive the swelling discontent in America. For a country celebrated for its long-term vision and defending raison d'etat, this comes as a surprise. I'm sorry, but not all anti-Netanyahu demonstrations in the last year or so are so easily dismissed as being anti-Semitic. Over the years, Netanyahu usually outmaneuvered his domestic opponents by focusing on security and economic prosperity, exploiting divisions in Israeli society, maximizing his base, protecting his right flank while undermining any chance of peace between Israelis and Palestinians. Internationally, Bibi has founded his career on his arcane ability to manipulate U.S. Congress while being in bed with some unsavory partners, not least Vladimir Putin. And it wasn't just a marriage of convenience. Netanyahu is a classic populist nationalist politician who has succeeded in degrading and sowing doubt and mistrust regarding Israel's democratic institutions such as the courts and the media. This is known as Berlusconi school, to recall another of Putin's close buddies. Unfortunately for Bibi, Putin wasted no time to play the Arab card in an opportunity that Moscow had not seen in this region, probably since Anwar Sadat expelled 15,000 Soviet military advisors in the early 1970s. Tragically for Israel and for Palestinians, for the time being, Bibi will bask in the limelight as a wartime prime minister. 
The end to the war could spell the end of his premiership and face him with the potential jail term. So he'll use the war as a tool to cling to power. A great survivor as he is, his credibility with the Israeli public has taken a significant hit since October 7. According to Haaretz, arguably not a pro-Likud source, a poll conducted by researchers at Barion University asked Israelis about trust in information and decision-making regarding the war in Gaza. And results showed that less than 4% of the polled Israelis trusted Netanyahu. Instead, it was the IDF spokesman, Hagari, that emerged as the most reliable figure, which should not surprise, given that IDF is people's army, after all. Another poll conducted by the Lazar Research Institute for Israeli Daily Mariv found that 49% of Israelis, or about half, believed that Benny Gantz, the leader of a National Unity Party and a retired army general, is the best figure to lead the country's government. He's now part of the war cabinet and has made a calculation to keep Netanyahu around for now, but let's see what Gantz does when the war is over. The polls show a steep collapse in the popularity of Likud Party and in favor of National Unity Party, and Hamas's savagery punctured the myth of Netanyahu as a national guardian. It's quite remarkable that while 84% of Israelis are in favor of continuing the war, this is not translating into any support for Netanyahu. Indeed, more than half of all Israelis want him to resign. He would go down as a man who perpetuated Hamas's control of Gaza. Of course, Israelis aren't in favor of a Palestinian state right now, hence Bibi's lines, you know, I am the only person who can prevent a Palestinian state. Except that this is just not enough anymore. The country has been in a political paralysis for too long, with five elections in four years, a political crisis, and then its security establishment caught with their pants down. Not pretty for BBC Ter. Not pretty. Position 5. Kevin McCarthy, the 59-year-old former Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. McCarthy, a Republican congressman from California, was dramatically ousted as Speaker of the House in October and decided to leave Congress at the end of that month. This is an ignominious exit for a man that was once touted as the Republican Party's poster Young Turk. There were three of them. Of the Trinity, Eric Cantor, House Majority Leader between 2011 and 14, lost in a shock election in Virginia's 7th District to a Tea Party firebrand in a race that prefigured McCarthy's fall from grace this year. The third of the Trinity was Paul Ryan, who took over as Speaker of the House between 2015 and 2019, before stepping down. Few people remember that he was also a vice presidential candidate with Mitt Romney in what became the last cry of the traditional conservatism. McCarthy failed to step comfortably into these shoes after Nancy Pelosi's retirement. He tried to cling to his stature, and following Pelosi's momentous visit to Taiwan, he expressed his desire to meet with President Tsai Ing-wen, which he eventually did in what became the highlight of his career, except it was not in Taipei. The two met at Ronald Reagan's presidential library in Simi Valley, California. In response, Beijing sanctioned the library, but it's not clear to me what it means for books to be sanctioned. Burnt like in Nazi Germany or simply banned like in the USSR? I suppose it's the latter, in which case it doesn't really change anything for people in China, does it? In any case, while Pelosi's trip showed her personal courage of convictions, McCarthy's meeting with Tsai was overshadowed by his cagey encounter with Volodymyr Zelensky. Sensing Trump's disdain for Putin's nemesis in Kiev, McCarthy insisted that the meeting takes place without cameras. And the venue was Washington, D.C., not Kiev or Bakhmut. No balls there. 
McCarthy's ascent to his position as a speaker was thwarted by the same political wave that had ended Eric Cantor's career and undermined Paul Ryan's longevity as a political leader. He started his catastrophic year when he was elected as a speaker on the 15th round of voting in January. And then Matt Getz, the Republican congressman from Florida, led a rebellion of Magnificent Eight to oust him in the autumn. McCarthy was therefore defeated by that crumpest fringe, to which he tried to pander for months, not least by waving through a frivolous impeachment charge against the president, who has been accused of fathering a son, who in turn dabbles with side jobs as an influence peddler, an unheard of story in squeaky-clean Washington, D.C. McCarthy's resignation leaves Republicans with a slimmer majority until a special election is held next year to fill his seat in California's Central Valley, the historically Reagan-esque agricultural belt. He will be remembered as the first leader in the history of Congress's lower chamber to be voted out of the job by his own party. And he has shown to be a mollusk. After the January 6th events, he reportedly said, I've had it with this guy, referring to the orange menace. But just weeks later, he was seen smiling in photos with Trump at his Mar-a-Lago property. The bling-bling of his estate has a curiously mesmerizing effect on America's politicians. McCarthy's fall shows that old political money is losing influence, as he was his party's foremost money raiser. In the 2022 election cycle, two McCarthy-aligned groups, the National Republican Congressional Committee and Congressional Leadership Fund, raised a combined $550 million on behalf of House Republican candidates, far more than the halls of previous GOP leaders. And so what? All this Dow and no spine. Position 4, Li Shangfu, the 65-year-old general of the People's Liberation Army and the former Minister of Defense of Communist China. Here's one man that was uh, playing hard to get. U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin was trying to meet with this official face of the People's Liberation Army, only catching his elusive glimpse once at a function in Singapore. But then suddenly, General Li Shangfu vanished. He was apparently placed under investigation amid a major upheaval affecting the PLA. The trouble with Li Shangfu was that before being appointed minister, he headed the People's Liberation Army's main department for procurement and development of weapons. He ran that department from September 2017 until October 2022. And show me a ground more ripe for corruption than public procurement in a government priority area. In China, the procurement of equipment is the so-called fat area, meaning it actually incentivizes corruption among officials. When this unfolded last July, the department published a notice calling for tips from the public about corruption inside the procurement department, dating all the way back to October 2017, so the month when Li Shangfu took over. This was a wonderful Orwellian opportunity to get rid of your annoying neighbor or your pesky in-law just tip the government and voila, your getfly is gone. The investigation against Li Shangfu came barely two months after Xi Jinping disappeared two top generals at the dictator's favorite rocket force, which oversees the country's rapidly expanding arsenal of long-range missiles and nuclear weapons and which could play a crucial role in the war against Taiwan, Japan and the United States. Li Shangfu's disappearance is a deep embarrassment for Xi Jinping, who, after all, serves as the chair of China's Central Military Commission and occasionally dons that Mao suit that is not very flattering for his waistline, tragically. 
So, not sure what's more embarrassing, uh, that Winnie the Pooh look or the heads rolling among his appointees. The Rocket Force scandal was very wide-ranging. General Li Yu Chao, who was the chief of the Rocket Force eunuch, and his deputy, General Liu Guangbing, as well as former deputy Zhang Zhengzhong, were all removed. Many others disappeared, and at least one former deputy commander died of unspecified illness. The newly appointed leaders of the Rocket Force are former deputy Chinese Navy chief Wang Hobing and party central committee member Xu Shishan, neither of which served in the Rocket Force, which underlines the scale of the upheaval. Wang Hobing, for example, is among those responsible for devising an attack on Taiwan. Meanwhile, according to some leaks, the former roster of the Rocket Force was not too hot on a kinetic military campaign, warning that PLA was not ready for action just yet against the U.S. and Japan. In 2018, Li Shangfu was sanctioned by the United States for allegedly buying weapons from Russia. This became a major diplomatic roadblock when he was named the defense minister in 2022. As mentioned, for many months, China refused to arrange any meetings between Li Shangfu and Lloyd Austin, so maybe his appointment in 2022 was precisely to achieve that. Some China's hands in Washington, such as Bonnie Glazer, claimed that Li Shangfu's removal would improve U.S.-China military contacts. Well, that's from a lady that postures as China's expert in Washington. If so, well done, because there has been no Ministry of Defense in China since uh, Li Shangfu's ousting two months ago now. So, so much for dialogue. Position 3. Bengvir, the 47-year-old lawyer that has led the far-right party Jewish power, Otsma Yehudit, since 2019 and was sworn into the cabinet after last year's elections. He was later appointed the National Security Minister. Yes, Security of Israel. In his stellar career, Bangvir went from being a fringe activist living in one of the most extreme settlements in the West Bank to being in a position of overseeing the Israeli border police of the occupied territory and creating a state-funded ultra-nationalist militia. What? Israel's border police? How is that for a career booster these days? Ben Gvir doesn't care all that much about border police because there shouldn't be any border with Palestinian land in the first place. He himself is a settler in Kiryat Arba, one of those most radical settlements. And in the past, Minister Ben Gvir had been convicted of incitement to racism, destruction of property, possessing a terror organization's propaganda material and supporting a terror organization. Now, which terror organization was it? Meir Kahan's outlawed group, Kach, or some people say Kach. By the way, when Vladimir Putin labels the Jewish president of Ukraine a Nazi, he may have actually meant Meir Kahan, whose views are much closer to Nazism than Vladimir Zelensky's. Shockingly, for the ever-shrinking Israeli left, in the election of uh, March 2021, Ben Jewish Power Party managed to enter the Israeli parliament by merging with Bezatel Smotrich National Union Party and thus becoming the battleship for religious Zionists, at the behest of none other than the then Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who lost that election to the combined front of Naftali Bennett and Yair Lapid. When Netanyahu resurfaced, he clearly needed Ben Gvir. Ben Gvir's antics are too many to enumerate. Um, he would like to expel disloyal Palestinian citizens of Israel. He used to display on his wall a picture of Baruch Goldstein, the American Israeli who massacred 29 Palestinian worshippers in Hebron in 1994. Ever an agent provocateur, in June he entered um, Al-Aqsa Mosque compound in East Jerusalem and declared Israel being in charge there 
and then returned with a group of more than 1,000 ultra-nationalist settlers to the compound again. This was his third such visit within a year. And before October 7, Ben-Gvir was quoted saying, uh, the right of me, my wife, and kids to travel around the West Bank is more important than that of Arabs. Sorry, Mohammed, but that's the reality, quote-unquote. So you can congratulate him for his media-rich circus, but only if you forget that he was supposed to act as a security minister, not as someone who, with each action, only increases his citizens' insecurity. Instead, Ben-Gvir has been accused domestically of running his ministry like a crime organization. Many Likudniks abhorred Netanyahu's decision to bring right-wing lunatics, such as Ben-Gvir, into the government, and Ehud Barak even made a prophecy of the coming dark days, which is scary because under Minister Ben-Gvir's careless watch, dark days actually did descend on Israel. Alas, Ehud Barak is the 49th prophet to Israel. Tragically, Bibi still needs Ben-Gvir today. After the war started, during seven-day temporary ceasefire, when civilian prisoner exchange took place, Ben Gvir stated that he would withdraw from the government if the Israeli premier decided to discontinue his military campaign in Gaza. So, in order for Netanyahu to remain in power, Ben Gvir has to be made happy. This has led Netanyahu to say that um, he's ready to go to war with the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank. What's the point of focusing on Hamas? You may still need them in future. All right, position two, Qing Gang, 57-year-old former Minister of Foreign Affairs in Communist China. From the prophecies of dark days in Israel to even darker days in the land of the dragon, we're talking here about a disappeared and presumably dead China's former foreign minister. He was abruptly removed from his position in July, and since then has apparently passed away under mysterious circumstances. According to sources with alleged access to high-ranking Chinese officials, Qinggang died in late July at a military hospital in Beijing, a hospital known for catering to the country's top leaders. Now, conflicting reports suggest the possibility of either suicide, assisted suicide, or good old Chinese torture. Was he subjected to infamous hundred cuts, Langche? For those who do not know what Langche was, I'll let you Google it, but please do not do this if you are prone to nightmares. In Xi Jinping's neo-Stalinist China, this whole Qinggang affair is, indeed, more bone-chilling than truly surprising. Maybe one day we will learn who are the contemporary equivalents of Jagoda, Yezhov, or Lavrentibieria, uh, to quote just the names of the three of Soviet Union's most infamous executioners. So here's the story. The dapper Mr. Qinggang, appointed Minister of Foreign Affairs in late 2022, had an extramarital affair during his tenure when he worked as China's ambassador to the United States. The dalliance was with Ms. Fu Xiaotian, China's high-profile TV journalist who was posted as a news correspondent in London. Nothing to see here. Except that, during her stay in the UK, the prepossessing Ms. Fu was apparently recruited by MI6, you know, the home of James Bond. Alright, so where's the scoop? What we do know is that, that she attended Cambridge University, whose publishing house, CUP, um, Cambridge University Press, is known to be following Chinese Communist Party's publishing guidelines. But in a brutally British quid pro quo, the school has long functioned as a recruiting ground for Britain's intelligence agencies. There is a lot that you can say about post-colonial Britain, but their global spy network is second to none. And Miss Fu Xiaotian certainly fell for this role, eventually ensnaring her lover, whom she had met more than a decade ago when he was posted to the Chinese embassy in London. As we know, the affair lasted throughout 
Mr. Chingang's subsequent ambassadorship in the U.S. and led to the birth of a love child in the United States. The mainland Chinese, even those with a communist background, just love giving birth to babies in the United States. The fetuses are quickly trained to sign those dark blue passports before they leave the maternity ward. Equipped with his um, American progeny, at some point the future minister, Chingang, was compromised. It's unclear when that happened exactly, as he continued all along to officiate as a vocal black belt wolf warrior for the CCP. Last July, he was abruptly removed from the duties as a minister after barely six months into his tenure. This was yet another personal disaster for Xi Jinping, given that Qinggang, just as Ling Shangfu, were loyalists, who were handpicked and elevated mere months before they went missing. So there are cases thus very much unlike the previous victims of Xi Jinping's uh, purges, because those officials removed in the past, such as Bo Xilai or Zhou Yongkang, were members of competing factions or dangerously popular princelings, whereas this year's disappearances were supposed to be Xi Jinping's loyalists and were appointed precisely for this reason. It's not easy to be a dictator. Just ask Charlie Chaplin. So why is it raining disappearances in Xi Jinping's entourage? There is a good structural reason for it. The system promotes loyalty over competence. But the great leader has been in power for so long, and thus has been isolated from the real life for so long, that he can only rely on people whom he had met personally early in his career. This is why people like Qinggang, a former small-town official, shut up to fill a spot in the standing committee of the Politburo of the CCP. So right at the top. And on the way to the top, Qinggang, started out first as a spokesman for the Chinese foreign ministry and then became China's chief protocol officer, overseeing most of Chairman Xi's interactions with foreign dignitaries between 2014 and 2018. And after a brief stint as a vice foreign minister, Qin was named ambassador to Washington in July 2021 and foreign minister barely 18 months later, which is very fast indeed in the Leninist system. He was last seen in public on June 25th when he met with Deputy Russian Foreign Minister Andrei Rudenko. And it's apparently Russians who pulled the trigger on the guy. As we learned from the European version of uh, Politico, Rudenko's real mission in Beijing was to inform Xi Jinping that his foreign minister and several top officers in the PLA had been compromised by Western intelligence agencies. Now, social media and the PRC only allow stories that serve the CCP, so the issue of the love child from the affair has been blown up by the propagandists, allegedly as the sole justification for the disappearance of the personable minister. But things may be more complicated for Xi Jinping. Qinggang's alleged death adds to the communist Anus Horribilis, coinciding with the untimely death of Li Keqiang, China's recently retired prime minister, number two in the communist hierarchy who supposedly died of a heart attack in a swimming pool in Shanghai in late October, despite enjoying some of the world's best medical care. So, no Russian open windows in China, but plenty of heart-attacking swimming pools. Paranoia with Chinese characteristics. There was a bit of triumphalism in the voice of Bill Burns, uh, director of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, who admitted this year that the CIA had made progress rebuilding its network within China and had a strong human intelligence capability in the country. But the question remains, what did Moscow try to achieve by tipping Beijing about Qinggang? What kind of leverage? Catching a senior partner with pants down and exposing serious cracks in the system that prides itself with being impervious, why would they do it? That's a major loss of face for Xi Jinping. And what is worse in China than Dui Lian, 
a loss of face? Did Putin just have a good chuckle? That would certainly irk Beijing. Or maybe not. Rather, it is not impossible that Russians may have been snookered by the CIA and MI6 to feed incorrect information to Xi Jinping in an effort to sow discord between Moscow and Beijing by letting Moscow shame the Chinese leaders, while at the same time degrading China's offensive capabilities in the rocket force and propaganda while deepening the regime's paranoia. Yes, paranoia with Chinese characteristics. Why am I not a big fan of this last hypothesis? Because if Xi Jinping begins to believe that Russians are playing him, or that he is played by someone else who is simply using gullible Russians, then his urge to act will become overwhelming. Australia's ambassador to Washington, Kevin Rudd, has recently described Xi Jinping as a man in a hurry. If that hurry gets worse, then we'll face a Pacific war like sooner rather than later, potentially with the Philippines caught in the middle, as things are standing right now. So I hope that this spy drama is not 100% true, but it's intriguing nonetheless. All right, the winner now, position one. No surprises here, the winner is Evgeny Prigozhin, 62-year-old head, former head, of the paramilitary Wagner Group in Russia. The mystery of the year is not why Evgeny Prigozhin had to die. The mystery is why he had to die with all of his top brass flying on the same plane. Didn't he know a thing about Russia's history? Why did Prigozhin lead an entire group of top lemmings, Dmitry Utkin, Valery Chikalov, and several other veterans of Wagner paramilitary group to board that Embraer plane? From what we know, Prigozhin really died, although seeing some goons protecting his grave in St. Petersburg raises the question of what kind of great diggers the Kremlin was afraid of. Putin's enemies usually fall to the ground with terminal consequences, but most prefer doing it from open windows, not from planes. Unless, of course, they mount the greatest challenge to a former KGB's officer never-ending rule. It is suspected that Prigozhin's physical downfall was engineered by Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of Russia's Security Council, who joined KGB in 1975 and knew Putin since that time. When in summer, Wagner Group rushed towards Moscow, shooting down military planes, Putin stated in a speech that those on the path of treason would face punishment, after which the whole farce turned into Gogol. The mutinous march was abruptly stopped, criminal charges were dropped, and Wagner boss was supposed to relocate to Belarus to prepare, I don't know, hybrid operations against Lithuania, maybe? Poland? Bornholm Island? But then he didn't go to Belarus. He was pictured with African officials in St. Petersburg and apparently traveled to Africa, where Wagner enjoyed the peak of its military and business influence. Prigozhin's connectivity raised him to a wealthy oligarch status, but then he underwent a major professional transformation when the business for Donbas warlordism was opened by Moscow in 2014. His soldiers of fortune fought in Ukraine, in Syria, in Central African Republic, Sudan, Libya, Mozambique, and in Mali, where another Wagner transportation plane crashed weeks after Prigozhin's demise. You could not deny the former backsnatcher a knack for opportunity spotting. He set up a Russian troll farm in St. Petersburg, the Internet Research Agency where provocateurs were paid to create a large number of fake online personas and posed as legitimate U.S. persons to interfere with the 2016 U.S. presidential election. I battled one such troll during the first Ukrainian war. He pretended that he was from Buenos Aires, except that he had no idea how to write in porteño slang, so it was easy for me to blow his cover and retroll him in return. Prigozhin ended up believing his own star. After recruiting convicts to fight against Ukrainians in Soledad and Bakhmut, 
He came out against military establishment while underestimating the personal links that connect Putin with Shoigu and with Gerasimov. He courted social media attention, casting himself as competent and ruthless in contrast to the Kremlin's military establishment. The attempted coup d'etat was thus a logical, if unexpected, consequence of this hubris. Whatever support he believed to have among the army's top ranks, it didn't materialize during the attempted putsch. After so many persona changes, there was simply no new role for him in Putin's Russia. And that's why the crash of the Embraer flight feels today more like assisted suicide than a replay of Kornilov affair from 1917. At least General Kornilov died in a battle. So here we go. Let's recapitulate those pathetic losers of 2023. Position 10, Olaf Scholz, the sloth. Position 9, Li Chang, the amoeba. Position 8, Gabriel Boric, the cockatoo. Position 7, Jair Bolsonaro, the pufferfish. Position 6, Benjamin Netanyahu, an old turtle. Position 5, Kevin McCarthy, the mollusk. Position 4, Li Shangfu, the macaque. Position 3, Bengvir, the octopus. Position 2, Chingang, the dodo. And the winner, Yevgeny Prigozhin, the lemming, in charge of an entire troop of lemmings. Next week, top 10 leaders who could make the mark on 2024. Enjoy the week and happy New Year 2024.